Steve Donahue with another episode of Legacy Podcast, helping you build your legacy. This episode is number 256, and this is an exposition of 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through verse 27. And uh, that's a great passage of scripture, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to um, gain a lot in that, and uh, it'll value You'll gain a lot of value in it in building your legacy. And if you want to find out more about the passage and get an outline, additional information, resources, that kind of thing, check out thelegacypodcast.com, episode number 256. Thanks for listening. There is a great deal of talk these days, and there is much written these days about the Antichrist. And you can go to the bookstore, Christian bookstore, you can go online, Amazon.com or whatever it is, and you can type in Antichrist, and book after book after book will come up. And this is nothing new, though, in our generation. This has always been the case. If you look at every generation, there's always been somebody who is pointed to as the Antichrist or the one who exhibits those qualities anyway. Of course, during World War II, we looked at Hitler as the Antichrist and Uh, During the Reformation, of course, they looked at the Catholic Church and the Pope as the Antichrist. And you go all the way back uh, through history and you will see that there has been, with every generation, an obsession, if you will, with trying to identify who the Antichrist is or at least those who exhibit the qualities of the Antichrist. But what I find interesting in the scriptures is that there is only a couple of places in the Bible where the word is actually used. One of those places is in this passage. Now, if you read anything on the idea, they, uh, they will say that there are numerous passages that actually identify the Antichrist. But the word itself is only used in a few places. One of those places here is in 1 John in chapter 2, the passage that we are looking at today. So we will learn some about what this Antichrist is or who he is or the kind of quality of character that this person might have. Uh, as we deal with some of the characteristics of what it is to be a true believer. If you recall, John's letter he wrote uh, so that those readers, the Christians that are reading it, might be assured of their faith. He says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. And the word know is one that is repeated over and over again in this epistle. And the idea is behind it is that when we read these things, that we can be assured that we have eternal life when we conduct ourselves according to what is given to us in this letter. Remember, we're not talking about here a means to salvation. He's not writing to the Christians and saying, uh, you have to do these things in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. The only way in which any of us can be saved is through the blood of Christ. 
We're not saved by works. We're not saved by exhibiting certain character qualities or conducting ourselves in a certain way. Uh, That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that we are saved by faith. And yet it also teaches us that we will have assurance of our salvation when our faith exhibits itself in certain ways. That's what John is talking about here in this letter. And we have to make sure that we understand that when we look at some of the principles that we'll look at today. So uh, speaking of which, let's look then at five qualities of true Christians that give him assurance of his salvation, gives him assurance of salvation. First of all, true believers do not fall away. True believers do not fall away. We see this in verses 18 and 19. It says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. And so in verse 18, it talks about it being the last hour. The last hour actually began with the first advent of Christ. And it continues now over 2,000 years uh, before he comes back again. That's the last hour. So we're living the last hour. And we look at this and we say, how can 2,000 years be the last hour? And again, it's the perspective of God. God sees eternity, right? So what is 2,000 years in the light of eternity? It's just a minute or two. It's the last hour. And so we are living, as this scripture says, in the last hours. And he says that why, is, why can we tell that it is the last hour? He says because of the observation of antichrists or of the antichrist. Now what's interesting here is he, he uses antichrist with a capital, meaning a specific person. But also he speaks of there being antichrists. The idea that there are those who are opposed to Christ who exhibit the same qualities as that of the antichrist. John is the only one who actually uses the word here. And uh, many Bible students claim uh, many Bible passages speak of the Antichrist, as I mentioned in the introduction. But here John says that those who do not who those who deny Christ are the Antichrist. And in verse 19, it says they went out from us. That is, they departed from the church. They separated themselves from the covenant community. The reason they went out from the community was that they were not of it. The principle that can be gleaned from these verses then is that true believers will not fall away. They will not go out from it. Because if you go out from it, the idea is that you were never really of it. And the reason why they went out is because they were not of it. The way that we know that they were not of it is because they went out from it. That's kind of the logic that he is using here. It reminds me of uh, one of the confessions of the faith of the Reformed Church. It says, They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This is what uh, in Baptist circles we always talk about, the, the perseverance of the saints. I actually like the way that it's phrased better when we, say, when we call it the preservation of the saints. Because it's God who does the preserving, not we who do the persevering. And so uh, we will get to that here shortly. But Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Second Peter chapter one, verse 10 says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Romans eight twenty eight and 30 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. So you can see the progression here that God is doing this work and he's continuing to do this work. He doesn't all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, I forgot about these people and leave his hand. He continues to work and interact in the life of his people such that they are able to persevere and they do not fall away. I like the way John uh, says it in his gospel, chapter 10, verses 28, 29, it says this. And I have given them eternal life, Jesus is speaking, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That's comforting words because it it shows us that those of us who are believers, we will not fall away entirely uh, in the end. First Peter chapter one, verses five and nine says, who are kept By the power of God, this is speaking about Christians, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so it says that we are kept by the power of God. We are preserved by the power of God. Now, is the power of God sufficient to preserve us? Of course it is. And so we can have confidence that those who are genuine believers will not ultimately fall away Uh, in order to understand this let's just bring this to a real practical level and use a an illustration from the natural world that we might consider if someone starts out playing t-ball you know as a young a young person you know and they i I don't know how many of y'all remember playing t-ball or watching your kids or grandchildren play t-ball or whatever but uh, t-ball is something else isn't it i mean these kids can barely barely run around the base sometimes they don't know which direction to go on the bases you know and they it's it's quite a Quite an interesting thing. But if they start out playing t-ball, but they don't continue to play year after year, and they finally stop playing maybe when they're eight or nine, should we consider them baseball players? No. Why? Because they stopped playing. And that's the reality of it is, well, I don't know why it's so hard for us to think that that's easy to understand, right? That they stop playing baseball, so they're no longer baseball players. But then when we transfer it over to the Christian faith and someone leaves the church and we haven't seen them in 15 years, oh, well, they're still believers. Really? How do we figure that? You see, it's really easy to understand on one frame, but I guess it's because we just we have that hope, right? And, and it's possible that they might come back. But in reality, uh, what should we consider For those who have departed, can they return? Well, certainly they can through repentance and faith. But is that what we should expect? Uh, Most do not. What do we do then with those who seem to have dropped out of the church? Should we view them as believers or unbelievers? Well, I think a couple of things to note with reference to that. One is that we shouldn't give them any false assurance. If they're outside the church, they're have very little desire to worship the Lord. They're, they're living as though they're not a believer. Should we give them any assurance that they're a believer? I don't think so. And then secondly, what is, what is required of them if they are in such a state? The exact same thing that's required of someone who's lost. 
repentance and faith. And so we should always encourage those, whether they are unbelievers or whether they are living like unbelievers, to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. That's the same, same requirement in either case. And so uh, that is how we should deal with that situation. So firstly, we see then that true believers do not fall away. Secondly, true believers know the truth. True believers know the truth. <clears throat> we see that in verses 20 and 21. It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Now, one thing that we should know here is that <clears throat> he is not saying here that we are uh, omniscient when we become Christians. Omniscient means all-knowing. He doesn't say that all of a sudden when we become Christians that we know everything. <laughs> I mean, that's just reality, right? I mean, I... <clears throat> Well, you just have to ask my wife. I don't. I certainly don't know everything. Sometimes I act like I do, <laughs> but I don't. And none of us do, right? And so he's not saying in an absolute sense that when we become Christians that we know everything. What's he saying? He's saying that we know the truth. We know the truth of the gospel. We know enough to be saved. We know the reality of the difference between truth and error. And so he says here in verse 20. You know all things, verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. And so notice here, uh, and how often the word know is used. We see it being used uh, once in verse 20, you see it being used twice in verse 21, and this word occurs over and over and over again. In uh, John's letter and actually in his gospel as well. well. It's one of his favorite words. And there's nothing special to it. The only idea is that there is a knowledge that is at the basis of our faith. We do not have some abstract faith where we just take a leap of faith and just believe it without a blind understanding. No, we, there is a knowledge that is the basis for our faith. And he says the true believer knows the truth. Listen to what it says in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 32. It says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Proverbs 1, verse 23 says, turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 7 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 11, 12 says, He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And so we're told over and over again in the scriptures that there is a knowledge that is at the basis of our Christian faith. And it is a knowledge that enables us to know the truth. If you recall, this is one of the main themes that we looked at in Second Peter. It was a knowledge of salvation, a knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge of uh, all these different things that uh, are a part 
of Christianity. Now, it's interesting enough, I looked up some statistics on absolute truth and the knowledge of absolute truth. And according to a 2005 George Barna survey, 35% of Americans believe that moral truth is absolute. Only 35%. Some uh, believe, 32%, that morality is always determined by circumstances, situational ethics. So almost as many believe that as believe absolute truth. And then uh, 33% don't know or didn't respond, so they're just confused. So if we look at that and we consider that 35% of Americans believe in absolute truth, but of that 35%, some of them may have a knowledge of absolute truth, but they may not have a knowledge of the Savior, right? So their absolute truth may just be based upon some philosophical understanding or something like that. Uh, So let's just be generous and say that 25% of Americans believe in the absolute truth revealed to us in the scriptures. So, the other 75% of Americans, what are they? Uh, you know, we, we claim to be a Christian nation. And yet we look at our the things that we do as a nation, the ways in which we vote, and we wonder, what's going on? Well, when we look at statistics like this that say that only really 25% of Americans truly believe in the absolute truth revealed to us in the scriptures, well, it makes all the sense in the world. And so, what about you? Do you know and believe the truth revealed to us in the scriptures? Know the scriptures, for they are truth. Growth in the knowledge um, must require some basic knowledge, and that basic knowledge is revealed to us. You know, it's great to be able to know the truth. Uh, God has done a great thing being able to reveal himself to us in his word, to be able to know the truth. Uh, It reminds me of Pilate. Remember Pilate when he was uh, before Jesus and the crowd and they're trying to determine what to do. And and, uh, the issue of truth came up. And what did he say? What is truth? Well, you know what? We can know what truth is. We have it revealed to us in the word. And because we know what truth is, we can live our lives by it. And so Christians, believers, true believers will know the truth. But thirdly, true believers accept the Messiah. True believers accept the Messiah. We see this in verses 22 and 23. It says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I think it's interesting to note here that the liar is contrasted with truth just spoken about in verses 20 and 21. If the Christian believes the truth, knows the truth, and believes the truth, a liar is those who don't, right? I mean, that makes perfect sense. But I think it's also interesting here uh, how, he, uh, how he describes this. Because he says in verse 22, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And so there is an aspect of acquiring knowledge and there's an aspect of denying truth. And they, they work in differences. You know, we're, we're told often <clears throat> that um, one of the things that is spoken about when we go to court and we have to swear an oath, what does it say that we do? It says that you are swearing an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, that's really what truth is. And sometimes if you, if you suppress the truth 
or you deny the truth, or you don't speak entirely the truth, are you being truthful or are you lying? And the reality of it is that you're lying. I remember when I was growing up, one of the challenges that my parents had was that uh, they called it 50 questions. I, I guess looking back on it now, I would call it lying. Um, but at the time, I didn't think so. I thought it was just not telling the whole truth. <laughs> and ordinarily what it would go is that, you know, they gave us certain rules. We had to get back at certain times. We couldn't go to somebody else's house if their parents weren't home, these kinds of things, right? So um, periodically I would, you know, break those rules. And, uh, and then I would come home. And uh, say, for example, I went to a friend's house. The parents weren't there, right? They would say, so where'd you go after school today? And I would say, a friend's house, right? Well, that was true, right? Well, whose friend's house? Eric's, right? Uh, was his parents' home? You know, they had to keep asking all these different questions. Now, my brother, on the other hand... <clears throat> My brother didn't try to hide anything. If if he was asked, so where'd you go? I went to my friend's house and we had this party and he would just feel the whole thing, right? I was just the opposite. I only told them specifically what they asked. So was I being truthful or was I lying? I think according to the scriptures, I would have been lying. Why? Because I wasn't telling the whole truth. I was denying part of the truth. Now, the reality is, if they had asked me specifically, I would have told them specifically. But a lot of times they didn't ask me the right questions. And so they didn't get the right answers. <laughs> um, so in verse 22, it says, He who is a liar who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So what is the, what, what is the quality of... Of the Antichrist. The quality of the Antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the Antichrist. Someone denies who Jesus is. And so the Son is the key. What one's view is of the Son is the key. If they believe the Son, then they have the Father also. If they deny the Son, they neither have the Father nor the Son. And so in John chapter 15, verse 23, it says, He who hates me hates my Father also. Now, what makes the Jews, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Muslims all the same? They deny who Jesus really is. And so, even though there are different religions and different ways of looking at him, uh, they all can be lumped together in the fact that they are anti-Christian. They're anti-Christ in the sense that they, they deny who Jesus is. Because they are... Uh, one, you cannot deny any one part of the Godhead and say that you accept the other. It would be like saying that you deny reality of death, but you embrace the reality of life. You can't have one without the other in this world. Or like accepting that trees have fruit, but denying that they have leaves. You can't have a, a leafless tree that bears fruit. It doesn't happen. Or like accepting that we have lungs, but we have no heart. And so uh, we cannot say that we believe in the Father, but we deny the Son. Why? Because the Son and the Father are one. The Scriptures tell us that. An improper view of God has essential, or a proper view of the God has essential to having fellowship with God. Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, and any other religion deny the biblical understanding 
of the Godhead are not just a little wrong. They are outside the faith and are apostates. Yes, they are even antichrists, according to the scriptures. I know that these are hard words, especially in a, in a world in which we live today where everybody wants to be tolerant of every other religion. But the scriptures are very, very clear that there is exclusive claims that we must make according to the scriptures. And one is that true believers accept who the Messiah is. Fourthly, true believers abide in the word. True believers abide in the word. We see this in verses 24 and 25. It says, therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. Now, what is it that they heard from the beginning? It was the word, right? If you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the son and in the father. And this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. And so the scriptures teach us that true believers abide in the word. The word abide here is a uh, in the Greek Language, it's a present imperative. Now, that doesn't mean much other than uh, when it comes down to translation, it means something that is um, a continuous action. It is something that has been done over and over again. So it's this idea of not just abiding with him one time, but we are to continually be in this relationship of abiding in the word. It's an action that is repeated over and over again. And the word means remain. I think some of your translations may say remain rather than abide. And the idea is the same. It carries the idea of perseverance, which we've already looked at in verses 18 and 19 when it says not falling away. So here we have a positive. We won't fall away in verses 18 and 19, but in fact, we will abide. We will remain in the word. And it says here uh, in verse, uh, I guess, 20, uh, 24, it says, um, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you also. So there's a condition there. And um, it means that some will and some won't. But, of course, he is writing to Christians with the assumption is that they will. And what, what are the results of abiding in the word? It tells us that we will be able to abide in the father and in the son. Why? Because the father and the son have revealed themselves to us in the word. So when we abide in the word, we are abiding in the revelation of God. And, in fact, the word became flesh, the scriptures say, and dwelt among us. And then also you are insured of eternal life, tells us. John chapter 15, verses 4 and 6 through 7 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them in the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If you cut off a branch from a vine, what happens to that branch? It dies. And so we must remain attached to the Lord. We must abide in his word uh, in order for us to remain in him and to persevere. You know, the Old Testament gives us a great picture of what it means to abide in something. And uh, that picture is the actual picture of Noah and the ark. If you recall the story, we all have heard it since infancy, right? Being read that from storybooks or whatever it is. But the ark comes or the flood comes upon the world. And it says that uh, Noah and his family gather into the ark. God shuts them up in the ark. And it says that they remain in the ark. They abide in the ark throughout the whole flood. And because of that, they're able to be saved. Well, that's the idea that we are given here, that we are to remain in Christ 
in its entirety. We are to abide in it. And when we abide in it, we remain safe through all of the difficulties and the trials that come upon us in the world. And so abide in him and let his word abide in you. And then fifthly, the believer will be taught by the spirit. The believer will be taught by the spirit. In verses 26 and 27, it says this. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Now, what is the anointing that they have received that abides in them? It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If you recall, the scriptures tell us that the spirit will come upon the believers and and overcome them and they will be able to then uh, uh, be convicted of sin and be able to be transformed by uh, the spirit in their life. So verse 27, but the anointing which you have received abides in you and you have no need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things that is true and is not a lie, just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no need for teachers, no need for preachers, no need for commentaries and other people to teach us the scriptures. There's some value in that because we can't know everything. And so, you know, people can study different things and have more time into it. And their their time investment can then pay off for us as we reap some of what they've learned. So that it's not saying that we are without teachers. In fact, the scriptures say that teachers are good and preachers are good. Evangelists are good. They are all part of the church in order to do it. So what is he talking about here? He is saying that the spirit gives us the ability to understand the scriptures. It illuminates our mind. It opens our heart, opens our minds, opens our understanding gives us eyes that we might see, ears that we might hear, so that we might be able to comprehend what is there, so that we don't need someone to walk us through every little bit. Did you know that the scriptures are so absolutely clear? We were talking about that this morning in our Sunday school class. It's not the things in the scriptures that we don't understand that is difficult. It is the things that we do understand that are difficult. And what we do understand is plain and clear. It's the simple things. And yet it's hard enough. The scriptures tell us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's easy to know, right? We know that's what we are to do. What's the problem? It's doing it. Right? The scriptures say the second commandment and like it is this. We shall love our neighbors as ourselves. Is that hard to understand? It's not hard to understand. What's the problem? Doing it. And so the scriptures enable us to understand and to know the truth. We have an anointing from God that enables us to understand. In fact, this is what the scriptures tell us. <clears throat> that we are, we are given in the new covenant. We are given the spirit. In fact, uh, it tells us that uh, this spirit will, will come upon us in a way that has never happened before. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 33 through 34 talks about this new covenant. And it says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And I don't believe that this in its entirety has been fulfilled yet. But I believe that in essence, it is in the process of being fulfilled as he works out his will in us and his spirit indwells us. He reveals, he anoints us with his spirit so that we might then understand the truth. How many of you all remember a good teacher that you had growing up? Some of you probably remember good teachers. I I had a couple. I had some teachers that weren't so good either. 
as you probably did. Uh, but there, there were two specifically that stand out for me uh, that I remember. My, one of them was my sixth grade teacher, um, and uh, Mr. Cass was his name. And he was great. Uh, I, I learned a lot from Mr. Cass, and uh, he, he, was, he was a great teacher. My second um, teacher, I think probably is um, most on my memory, was my seventh grade geography teacher. I loved uh, geography, and he, he made it really come alive for me, and I, I loved the way that he taught. And uh, so, you know, those, those two teachers. But the reality is, no matter what teacher we think of in our past that has been impactful in our life, uh, they're nothing compared to the value of the teaching of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that, that is a great thing, that we can be blessed with such a thing, that we have the anointing of God that enables us to know the Scriptures Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 11 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And he goes on and he explains from Jeremiah and quotes what I just quoted earlier, that God will be in our hearts and he will be in our minds. And no longer shall a neighbor teach a neighbor saying, Know the Lord, but we shall all know him. And so the scriptures in John chapter 14 tells us that the Spirit comforts us. It illuminates the scriptures to us in verse uh, chapter 16 of John, it convicts us of our sin. In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit helps us overcome sin and helps us to pray. It's as though we have this internal compass that always points north and tells us how to know and do and uh, expect uh, from the Lord. It is a way for us to always know the direction that we are to go uh, from the revealed will of God. Compasses are important when we are trying to navigate Somewhere, aren't they? Now, of course, nowadays, you know, we all have GPS systems and everything else in our phones. We can, you know, tell us where to go, tell our phones where to go. And it, you know, gives us step-by-step directions. And so most of us don't learn uh, how to use a compass or a map or azimuths or anything like that anymore. But uh, some of you probably remember growing up and learning some of those things. And uh, when I was in the military, that was one of the requirements that we had to learn map skills and and uh, doing compasses and things like that. So there was one period of time in our uh, officer basic course where we did some field training like that, and and uh, we were put on teams, and uh, we were given some points to find on a map and uh, go from one point to the next, and uh, we were given different, uh, you know, launch times, so we staggered, so we couldn't just see the group in front of us and go, uh, go where they're going, that kind of thing. And it just so happened that my team was the dream team. I mean, if you, could, if you could pick any group of people to be on a team with that was going to be doing any kind of orienteering using maps and compasses and this kind of stuff, it would have been the team I was on. I was a geography major in college. So I loved maps. I knew maps. I studied maps. I knew how to work with maps. I, you know, I knew all that kind of stuff, right? Well, I wasn't the best. We actually had a certified pathfinder from the 101st Airborne Division that was with us on, that, on my team. So, I mean, he, he was, the, the military has trained to be jumping out of helicopters to land and then to map out an area, plot azimuths, and help them with the drop zone. Okay? And then, we, not only that, but we had a ranger qualified 82nd Airborne Division infantry officer. And we had some other people too. But those were the ones that were, and, and so you would think, that with those three guys, we would have been able to just cream the rest of the people in the group, right? I mean, you know, we would have been able to read maps backwards and forwards. What was the problem? 
we got confident. Who needs maps? Who needs to do azimuths? Who needs to be able to look at the compass? I mean, we'll just, we'll just breeze by these people just based upon our basic knowledge of how to do this, right? And so we plotted our first azimuth and first thing, and we got to the first point. And we're like, this is, there's nothing to this. So on the second one, we did it a little bit faster. And it took us a little bit harder to get to the third point. And the third point, we just said, you know what? We've only got two more points. It's got to be that way somewhere. Well, to make a long story short, you know what happened? We finished middle of the pack. <laughs> when we should have been at the very front. We had been given everything that we needed to be able to win, and yet we didn't win because of our pride. It got in the way, and we didn't listen to what we should have listened to. And that's the way it is sometimes in our Christian life. We have an anointing from the Holy Spirit who is able to give us a clear north and say, this is the way you are to go. But what do we do? Well, yeah, I could go that way, but it might be short if I go this way. And we go the wrong way. But the scriptures are given to us and the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we might not go astray. And a true believer listens to the scriptures and listens to the Holy Spirit and by that anointing that he's given to us. And so let not pride prevent you from being led by the Spirit of God into truth. Hold fast to the Spirit of God. So let's summarize. The true believer will persevere in faith to the end. The true believer knows the truth. The true believer accepts the Messiah as the Lord. And the true believer abides in the word. And the true believers are taught by the Spirit of God. Now this is all a work of God's grace. He preserves us in faith. He reveals himself and truth to us. He gives us faith so that we accept him as the Messiah and Lord of all. He provides us with his word and gives us a hunger for it so that we delight and abide in it. He teaches us through his spirit. We must not become prideful of ourselves when we see others not exhibiting the qualities because the only reason that we do exhibit them as believers is because the grace of God has worked in us and enabled us to do so. So let God be praised. Let us live with gratitude in our hearts. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up, and so it's a time in which we focus on giving thanks to the Lord. But really, our life as a Christian should be characterized by gratitude every day, all day long. Because we know that the only reason that we are able to experience any of these qualities that are listed here is because God chose to intervene in our life to work in us, to work faith in us, to give us his revealed will, to anoint us with his spirit so that we might be able to act not based upon our own actions, but act based upon what he is doing in us and through us. And so he is the one that deserves all praise. Let's pray. I think that it's time we start crying for our nation and bow our heads and pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy?
like a plant one day will wither away and to this world we'll have to say goodbye but just like the plant that withers away we will leave many seeds behind if today you lost your life what would you leave behind what would the ones around you see what happened in the dash between your birth and death what will you do to change your legacy if today you lost your life what would you leave behind what would the ones around you see what happened in the dash between your birth and death what will you do to change your legacy what will you do to change your legacy